Hey friends, um, before we get started today, we just wanted to give a little shout out to Alicia Fullerman and Stephanie Hyde, our very first Patreon patrons. Thanks Alicia and Stephanie for supporting us as we share these stories. If you'd like to become a patron as well, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com. Is that a backslash or a forward slash? You know, it's the one that leans to the right, Cocoon Stories. Patreon.com slash Cocoon Stories. We'd love to hear from you and get to know you better. A leap of faith, a roll of the dice, an accident that happened, or maybe it was a long and arduous and extremely intentional hike up a medical mountain. There are lots of ways that we could describe getting pregnant, but once it happens, once the ball is rolling and the feet is growing, most pregnancies follow a pretty straightforward script. Grow, get big, get bigger, be born. A squalling baby is placed in his parents' arms for them to coo and cuddle and admire. But sometimes the script is cut short. The main player enters too soon. The script becomes useless and the parents confused. The baby isn't where he is supposed to be, in their arms. The play goes on and they must figure out what to do. No one is quite sure where things are going anymore, or when or how they might resolve. They are all in a limbo, a middle place, where the baby is often still unstable and the parents are so drawn into the drama that they are practically in another world. It is an isolated, lonely path, partly because of the baby's fragility and partly because no one knows what to expect, what comes next, or how it will all turn out. Every baby has his own path. Every family is different, but one thing is certain, no one will come out of that other world unchanged. I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best. And this is Cocoon, Stories of Gestation. Today's story is about one mother's entrance into that world, her surprise and confusion on landing there 18 years ago, but also the ways in which she has devoted her life to serving as a guide and support to others who have found themselves in similarly murky and disoriented circumstances. Here she is. My name is Kelly Kelly. I live in Austin, Texas with my children and husband. Kelly is a planner, a type A personality, she says. When she got pregnant, her biggest concern was how she was going to manage motherhood and her career. She was thinking about getting an MBA. She was really enjoying her job. And I never really thought about leaving her career because of the baby. I, I would just say that I felt like, you know, everything was going perfectly as planned. And then fairly early in the pregnancy, I had what they call the triple test done. They're checking for many different um, different conditions and birth defects and things in the triple screen. And I honestly didn't even know I had consented to the test that the test that's what the test was for um I had just gone to a regular OB appointment and then the next day I got a call about nine in the morning I was about to go into a team meeting and they called and told me that they were very concerned about the numbers for my triple test and they felt like the baby had downs and they wanted me to come in immediately for genetic testing. So that, you know, really shook me. She was shaken, but at the same time, she felt she could be a good mom to a special needs child. 
She had a cousin with special needs and had volunteered in a special education class in middle school, so it wasn't something completely foreign to her. Not what she had hoped for, but still. I felt like, you know, I can be a very good mom to a child with special needs. And I, you know, was kind of in my mind thinking, you know, that maybe that's why, um, you know, this was the plan and that I could be a very good mother to a child with special needs. But at the same time, it was very scary. You know, everything just changed in an instant with one phone call. And I went, you know, very early the next morning and very quickly during the sonogram, they realized that I wasn't as far along in my pregnancy as they had originally thought that I was. And so therefore the triple screen was not accurate. It could only be accurate during a certain window of time, which I I don't remember now at what week. So therefore they quickly told us they had made a mistake. The baby was healthy. This scare happened early in her second trimester. Kelly and her husband were grateful to be able to move forward with an updated due date. But just a couple of months later, when Kelly was about 24 weeks pregnant. I had a very busy day at work, and I had started to feel some pains in my lower abdomen. And I just really thought that I had been on my feet too much, that I had overextended myself. And I decided that I would leave work to avoid maybe some of the rush hour traffic and get home and rest. The traffic was awful, taillights as far as she could see, but there was nothing to be done but stay in the car. As she inched along, she kept an eye on the exits in case she felt like she needed to take one and drive to the nearest hospital. But then again, she didn't know enough about contractions and labor to know if that's what she was experiencing. So she sat tight, trying to find a comfortable position behind the wheel of her car and finally made it home. As soon as she walked through the door and saw her husband, the resolve she'd built up to never complain about the pregnancy dissolved, and she broke down in tears and told him she thought she was sick. I looked at him and I just started to cry, and I told him, I think that I'm sick. I I think something's wrong. I just think I'm sick. And so this is the part of the story where we always laugh because we were two college-educated adults, and we decided to call our parents because we thought if we call our moms, they'll know what to tell us to do. And again, this is before everybody Googled everything. And probably now we probably would have gone on Google or YouTube video or something to find out what was going on. But back then, we decided to call our moms, and you know, I couldn't get in touch with my mother, and we called his mom. And she just asked me a series of questions that I honestly had not even thought to ask myself. Having never had a pregnancy before, I just didn't even know what questions to be asking. And uh, she had had a loss of a baby, um, and, and so she really understood and knew the signs and what to look for. And so she advised me to hang up the phone and call 911. And so I lay down on the floor in the bathroom, and I just remember my little dog. I had a little dachshund at the time, and he was just so upset and was kissing my face. And my husband was just so, so scared. And he was talking to um, the operator, and she was, of course, asking him questions. And very quickly, we heard sirens. And so they had, the fire department 
arrived first, and they came in and they assessed me, and they felt like I had a um, either a bladder infection or a kidney stone. Um, they just did not think that I was in labor. They were just encouraging us to call our OB and make an appointment for the next day. And by then the paramedics arrived and they were assessing me and they too felt like I did not need to go to the hospital. But my husband very wisely just told them that we had insurance and we had already called our doctor and that they were going to take me to the hospital. We left and, you know, there was no fanfare. It didn't feel like they were in any big hurry. <laughs> there were no lights, no sirens. We were just driving again in traffic uh, towards the hospital. And I kept telling the paramedic, it was a female paramedic with me, and I kept telling her that I was in pain. And um, I was trying to time the time between the pains and she just kept assuring me that everything was okay and she you know had me laying on my side and she was just encouraging me to breathe deeply and oh I'd say you know a good 15 minutes into the ambulance ride she wrote something on her clipboard and she passed it up to the driver and I asked her, you know, if everything was okay and what she was writing. And she said, no, I, I really believe you are in labor and I need to start an IV. That's when they turned the sirens on. And, you know, we began to drive much faster. And I was very concerned because my husband was following us, you know, behind the ambulance in the truck. And I just knew that he must be terrified. While things sped up from there, it felt to Kelly that the situation became a comedy of errors. First she was taken to the wrong place in the hospital, then she was taken to a small, dark room to be examined. When the young nurse was doing her assessment, Kelly's water broke. Her first words were, I'm so sorry, but there's nothing we can do. And so, to me, that just meant that the baby died. By that point, Kelly's husband, who had been following behind the ambulance, had arrived and started trying to take charge of the situation. To Kelly's embarrassment at the time, he made a bit of a scene, demanding someone more senior to come evaluate her. His insistence seemed to pay off, and Kelly felt that she got the attention she needed much more quickly than she would have otherwise. Amidst the confusion, Kelly remembers more and more people flooding into the ER, trying to reconcile the discrepancies with her due date, which had been changed a couple of times. They finally decided that she was 24 weeks in one day. This was basically the cusp of viability. They would not try to resuscitate a baby born before 24 weeks. But Kelly really didn't understand what that meant right then. She was more concerned with the fact that she hadn't taken any childbirth classes and didn't know how to push the baby out. It ended up being a moot point because with the baby being in a transverse position and Kelly's vital signs being somewhat concerning, the doctors decided to put Kelly to sleep and do an emergency C-section. I was very relieved when they decided to put me to sleep because I was just so overwhelmed about how to push and how to deliver a baby and what this was going to look like. Was he going to be alive when he was born? And so, I don't know. I don't want to say it was the coward way out, but when they told me they were putting me to sleep, I 
I, I didn't argue with that at all. But when Kelly woke up, it was like she was in a dream. Nothing was quite right. Everything was a little surreal, starting with who was sitting next to her bed. When I awoke, um, it was a very awkward situation because my sister's boyfriend was sitting by my bed, and I, I was just like, so like not knowing where's my husband, where's my sister, why are you here? Not that I didn't love him, he had been a boyfriend for a long time and a part of our family, but I just couldn't understand, you know, you're coming out from under sedation and not everything is clear and. So the nurse told me that I had a baby girl. And my sister's boyfriend said, no, she had a boy. And they're arguing over a girl or a boy. And I just said, the baby's alive. You know, I, I just didn't know that the baby would be alive. And so they, were, they quickly explained that, yes, the baby had lived and the baby was in the NICU and at, the, at that time, I didn't even know what a NICU was, um, neonatal intensive care unit, um, but I didn't know what to expect in a NICU. It was not long after that that my husband was able to come, and he brought a picture with him, a Polaroid picture of our baby. And I will just be honest and say it was... It was not anything of what you would expect to feel when you see your baby for the first time. Um, this did not look like a baby. It took me a while to even really register his face and um, what I was looking at because he honestly was very alien looking. Um, his skin was just translucent and... There were tubes and wires all over his body. There is just not a place to really even just look at the baby. You couldn't see his face and look at features and say, oh, you know, he's got my nose or your ears. And there was just, there was just medical equipment. Kelly's parents, who lived four hours away, arrived soon after that, not knowing if the baby would be alive by the time they got there. Anyway, my mom came in and I was just like, just don't cry, mom. Just don't cry because, you know, I'm just trying to hold it all together here. And so she was trying to be so brave and she looked at the pictures and she wanted to tape the pictures to the handrail of my bed. And I really did not want her to. I just wanted to put the pictures away and not look at him. For a very long time after that, I felt a lot of guilt about that, that that's not the reaction that a loving mother should have when shown a picture of her baby. I learned later that they have a term called anticipatory grief. It's not something that you know you even register or understand is happening, but you are trying to protect your heart. You are so you know not knowing if that baby's gonna live and not wanting to get close and feel that bond, you're just really trying to protect your heart. Protecting her heart and the intensely shocking experience of having such a premature birth continued to affect Kelly as she went further into this new world she'd landed in. Kelly was finally given the chance to go see her baby in the NICU several hours after he was born. The experience was unreal, she says, not only because it was a part of the hospital that so few people get to see, 
down a long hallway and behind a locked door, but because of the number of babies that were being kept in this isolated wing, somewhere close to 45 preterm babies were being kept alive there, far more than the two or three Kelly was expecting. Her 12-inch long, one-and-a-half-pound baby lay in an isolate covered in plastic wrap to help regulate the temperature. A ventilator breathed for him, and tubes and wires came out of everywhere. And while she stood looking at the scene, the odds were laid out for her. He had a 50% chance of survival in the first 24 to 48 hours, and was at high risk for a brain bleed. If he did survive that critical time, he had a 50% chance of lifelong developmental challenges. Your baby may be deaf, they said. He may have mental retardation or cerebral palsy, or any number of other challenges. Overwhelmed at the place, the baby, the odds, Kelly asked to go back to her room. I still feel guilty to this day that, you know, I wasn't able to to stand there and be there for my baby. It's 18 years later, and I still cry when I think about how devastating that was. You want to fight for them. You're, you're the mother. It's a primal instinct to protect and love. But all I had ever prepared myself, my heart for, was a full-term delivery where you birth the baby and, you know, your husband's there at your side and everybody's telling you to push and they put the baby on your chest and then you're nursing and everything is, you know, just birds singing (laughs) and the sun shining and so nothing nothing could have prepared me for standing there looking at this baby hooked up to all this medical equipment and them telling me he is going to have lifelong disabilities and not knowing from day to day if he would survive every time the phone would ring (laughs) we would just be terrified that he had not made it. Every fiber of your being is saying you want this baby to live. At the same time, you're struggling knowing the potential lifelong medical and developmental challenges the baby could have. At the time, Kelly didn't even know what questions to ask. She went from being a happy and healthy pregnant woman to basically living in a foreign land called the NICU in less than 24 hours. But she was there, in the NICU world, and she adapted. At 24 weeks, little Jackson was just barely in the living side of viability. He was so tiny and vulnerable that there was very little she could do for him at first besides watch. His skin was too sensitive to stroke. It was five days before she got to change his diaper. Jackson was six weeks before she held him for the first time. And so for a long time, the most Kelly was able to do for her struggling baby was to pump her breast milk. And she did her best at it, setting an alarm to go off every three hours throughout the night and day so she could keep her baby growing. But even that was a lonely, abstract kind of help. They explained to us just how critical it was for Jackson to receive my breast milk. And luckily, I was able uh, to produce breast milk. Um, I, I know that a lot of moms who have a traumatic birth are not. And so I was very blessed in that my milk did come in. And um, I really knew that was the only thing I could do for my baby because I, you know, could not hold him or really participate in any of his care at that point. 
and I worked very hard at pumping every three hours. I had a friend who, you know, was trying to cheer me up and, you know, make the best out of a really bad situation. And she talked about, well, you will be well rested when your baby comes home. And I just thought, wow, I know she's trying to be helpful, but clearly she does not understand that the stress of a baby being in the NICU, you you do not rest, you do not go home and sit and take a nap and you know relax and just wait for your baby to get better. I was pumping every three hours and just as if I had a baby, the biggest difference is you're, you're just not responding to a baby crying. You are setting an alarm and you are pumping every three hour, hours and you just know how critical it is that you produce this milk and you know I would sit in the bathroom alone at night pumping and crying because I miss my baby and just knowing this was all I could do to ensure that he he had every possible chance at survival pumping became a very big part of my life. I was using an industrial grade breast pump and uh, if any other mother that's listening that's used that kind of pump, um, then you know we're bonded forever because it's a very different experience than using your typical Medela breast pump. But other than consistently and diligently pumping her milk, Kelly felt like there wasn't much she could do in this strange new world. Early on in the NICU, I was really just a bystander. I felt like a visitor. I was just standing by his bed, and, um, you know, we are told to not talk above a whisper because their nervous system is not developed, and it's very important for them to have a quiet and a dark environment. Also, because their skin is not fully developed, it can tear very easily, so you're instructed just to touch them with the tip of your finger and to, you know, not stroke their skin. So really the only touch I had, I would just put my finger on his head or on his foot um, and just hold it there. I did get to change his diaper fairly early on, and that was an incredible experience for me to just feel like a mom, do a normal mom thing, change a diaper. But you just don't even realize how tiny a diaper is that is for a one-pound baby and how challenging it is to change that diaper because of all the medical equipment and all the things that you're trying to, you know, move the wires and the cords and uh, do it so gently and delicately. I had a phenomenal nurse that just knew that that was important for me to get to do as a bonding experience with my son. So she really encouraged me because she could have done it in half the time that it took to teach me to do it that first time. Um, but that that allowed me to start to do some of his daily cares. And you know now we just know so much more um, 18 years later, but how important it is for the parents to interact with a baby as soon as possible. Now, Hospitals are much more aware of and practicing kangaroo care, which is where the baby is put directly on the skin of the parent, skin to skin. 
and this helps the baby regulate their body temperature. We see that just their vitals do so much better when they're skin to skin with their parent. We know it also has emotional health benefits for the parents. Uh, but back then, kangaroo care was really more of a new thing, new practice in my facility. But at six weeks, I finally, finally got to hold him. And I'll say it was a wonderful experience, but it was also terrifying. And I just think, you know, a lot of people don't know, would never think holding your baby would be terrifying. But you're just so scared that, you know, a tube is going to come loose or you're going to do something wrong. You're going to hurt them. And so it took quite some time for me to be comfortable um, getting to hold him and care for him. But at six weeks, the same time Kelly was able to hold her baby for the first time, she also had to go back to work. Jackson was a million-dollar baby, and she needed to keep her insurance plan. She would wake up early, pump, drive to work to beat traffic, pump again, work for eight hours, and try to leave in time to beat rush hour so she could do some of Jackson's daily care before heading home. Her husband would go to the hospital to see Jackson before he went to work, then stop in again during his lunch break. And so that was extremely emotionally, physically exhausting as well. It was just a very difficult, challenging, emotionally, physically, financially time for us. Four months doesn't sound like that long, but when you are in this situation where your baby is so critical for so long and you're trying to drive back and forth to Minikyu every day and also work and pump your breast milk, it it was just a very difficult and dark time emotionally for me. I you know, I had a lot of friends, a lot of family, a very supportive community, but I just felt so alone. I just felt like no one else could possibly understand what I was going through. The loneliness was a part of the experience that Kelly thought she could fix. While she saw other NICU parents in passing as they cared for their babies side by side, there wasn't much of an opportunity for bonding. The hospital support group was not well attended, and she had very little time to find others who would be able to relate to her loneliness and reach out to her in her isolation. But there was one person who she felt bonded to in that dark time. A man I had gone to high school with, his sister had had a preterm birth a year before, and so he told her about me, and she called, and she talked to me several times throughout my NICU stay, and just really encouraging me, and it, it just meant so much to connect with another mom who really understood what I was going through and was, you know, saying that they too understood, you know, how difficult that was to leave the hospital without the baby and to be there and trying to pump and hold down a full-time job and um, just not knowing long-term how the baby was going to do medically and developmentally. So it just meant a lot to connect with her. I just say it was the voice of an angel. From that relationship, the seed of an idea grew for Kelly. Her husband will tell you that he knew from their first days in the NICU that Kelly was going to do something to make that strange and foreign world more hospitable to those parents who found themselves there. But it took Kelly several years to figure out how, and that voice from her high school friend's sister was the voice that led the way. 
In fact, it wasn't until after her second preterm birth. She had a daughter in 2002 who was born at 34 weeks, despite the fact that medical professionals said they were very confident she could carry to full term. But Kelly felt she really needed to look more closely at what the NICU life had done to her. I think after Lauren was born, I I was still having a lot of challenges related to um, Jackson's birth. And when she was born and was in the NICU, I was forced to really face my demons. I was back in the NICU and, you know, I thought I had put it behind me. And I realized that, you know, I was really struggling emotionally and had been ever since Jackson was born. And uh, I think I really refused to look at depression uh, or it being post-traumatic stress, which, you know, I know now I was, you know, I was diagnosed later with post-traumatic stress syndrome, but I really fought that because I felt like my baby survived. And so therefore I should be happy. And I, you know, all the other stuff that happened doesn't matter because he lived. So therefore I couldn't claim to have PTSD. You do grieve when you don't get the full-time pregnancy that you always thought you would have. Especially, you know, you've done everything right uh, and it's completely out of your control. I tell the story that I was I was still in the hospital. I think it was like three nights after Jack was born and I just couldn't stop crying. And, you know, there's baby blues and there's hormones, and, but my baby was not in the room with me. And it was late at night and the nurse came in to check on me and I was concerned about me and you know I I was trying to explain to her that I miss my baby and she offered to take me to the NICU to see him and I that was the first time that I had to articulate that you know I missed him being inside of me that I just looked down and instead of seeing this this bump I saw a hideous scar I was like, you know, a couple of days ago I was pregnant and I was expecting a full-term baby and planning baby showers and getting his nursery ready. And now, you know, everything's gone and it was just ripped away from me. It just, it really felt like it had just been stolen from me. It took a lot of work for me with a counselor to work through and understand the impact of that very traumatic birth and long NICU stay. So during that time, I started reaching out, trying to find support groups again. And uh, I did find a group locally through the March of Dimes. But when I went to the group, I found out it was actually not a support group as much as it was a, you know, a kind of a planning, event planning a fundraising awareness type committee that was supporting the March of Dimes. And, you know, I had a background in marketing and PR. And so I just dove right in. I really felt like I had found my people. Kelly and her family worked with the March of Dimes for years, serving as the ambassador family and sharing Jackson's story across the country. During that time, she met with many families with similar stories who were struggling with depression, anxiety, and PTSD, and really looking for greater support for those challenges. That's when I came back and started looking at what's missing. Because 
in our community, there was a lot of support for the baby themselves, the different therapies and uh, programs that were there for the baby, but nothing really to address the mental health, emotional needs of the parent. And so that's really that spark um, that was ignited probably when Jackson was around six years old, six, seven years old. Um, I started trying to write a business plan and do the research to find out, you know, what, what other organizations are out there? Is there anyone doing what I am proposing is needed for NICU families? And I just began to make phone calls and take meetings. And I just felt like if I made one positive progress that day, a phone call or a meeting, uh, wrote a grant, you know, that that was enough for one day. So it took quite a while to get things really, get those uh, wheels really turning. Uh, but once my daughter was in kindergarten, uh, I began to put myself, you know, full time into this effort to start this organization, which ultimately I named Hand to Hold because I feel like that's what I was really missing is someone to hold my hand, tell me it was going to be okay, that they would be with me no matter what happened. You know, you're not promising that baby's going to survive. You're not promising that there's not going to be challenges. You're just promising that you're not going to walk this journey alone. You're going to be surrounded by a community of support. It just really grew from there of making valuable connections, not only here in Texas, but across the country of meeting with therapists and NICU professionals and other parents to devise this business plan for Hand to Hold. Kelly didn't really know what she was doing, but she had faith, and she remembered the woman, the voice of an angel, who had connected with her in those first months of Jackson's life, who became an inspiration for the nonprofit organization Kelly began to build. It was many years after the NICU experience that I started reading Purpose Driven Life. I'll say I read it about five times because I was feeling cold to do something. I didn't know exactly what. Um, I think I was really fighting against it because I was like, who am I to start a nonprofit? And what do I know about running a nonprofit organization? And how am I going to raise the money to do this? And what would it, you know, what is a business plan? (laughs) And so uh, I, I kept rereading the book and it just kept telling me the same thing over and over and over. Just step out, just step out, walk in faith. I'll show you, you won't be alone in this. I'll open the doors. And that's what I really did. I just really said, okay, God, I, I will let you, you lead me. I I will follow you. Just open the doors. I will walk through them. And that's, that's exactly what's happened. And so I always tell people to be careful because when you tell God that you'll do something, put your seatbelt on because it's probably going to go a lot bigger and faster, just so much bigger than you could have ever imagined. And that's what this has been for me. I'll say I've made a lot of mistakes. I'll say it has not been easy. I'll say there's been a lot of tears and there's been fights in the marriage and, you know, financial challenges of trying to run a nonprofit and raise two kids. And, you know, it has certainly not been easy. And I, I'll say that about faith as well. 
Just because you feel led by God to do something doesn't mean He's going to make it easy for you either. Hand to Hold matches new NICU parents with parents who have been there before and have gone through Kelly's training. They match mentors to new parents based on birth stories. So parents of a 27-week baby would be matched with mentors who are also parents of a 27-weeker. The mentors provide support in any way they can, texts, phone calls, emails, whatever. From there, Hand to Hold continues to evolve and to increase its reach by doing in-hospital support groups and sibling education classes. Kelly started a podcast called NICU Now to serve as a kind of virtual support group for those who may not have access to Hand to Hold. And Hand to Hold continues to develop supports for families living in this limbo. Right now, we're working with a, a developer who has an app that is helping us build out kind of resource maps, care maps, if you will, uh, so that families can quickly have, you know, find uh, mental health professionals, therapists, uh, but doctors and therapists for their baby as well once they go home because the challenges of preterm birth do not stop at the hospital doors. And so families need support once they go home as well. So that really is the evolution. That's where we're going. Uh, we're uh, working really hard right now on some grants and some research projects looking at screening for postpartum depression in the NICU. Because if you probably remember as a, a new mom, when you go to your pediatrician's office, you are screened um, for postpartum depression, or at least you should be. And when you're going for your OB appointment, your follow-up appointment. But what we find for NICU parents, we really fall through the cracks because um, we're not typically going back and uh, seeing our OB, and we're not seeing a pediatrician because you know, Jackson was in the NICU for four months, so we were not going to a pediatrician's office. So I did not do all of those screenings. So we are working right now with some researchers on um, some projects to ensure that parents are being screened for both mother and father because we have higher risk factors for anxiety disorders, perinatal mood disorders, um, being depression, anxiety, and PTSD. So we are working, again, that's really where we see our biggest growth is making sure that parents have access to the screening, but once they are screened, they also have access to free support. And so identifying those counselors and therapists that are available to support these families. And there's a lot of access barriers that we're working on right now, because as you can imagine, if you have a medically fragile child, you are not wanting to leave the NICU to go to therapy. Um, once you go home, your baby is medically fragile. We do not take our babies out. I mean, I I really lived in total isolation for about six months after taking my baby home. So a parent is probably not going to go to therapy or a support group once they leave the hospital. So we're working through what are the best ways to get this support directly to the parents uh, during the NICU stay and once they go home. Kelly's firsthand experience gives her insight into the trials specific to the preterm birth population. She is aware that support for the NICU babies is great, NICU moms is okay, and NICU dads is pretty bad. And she's trying to change that. She knows that NICU parents have higher levels of stress and higher divorce rates, and she's shoring up the supports there too, encouraging dads and couples to acknowledge the trauma and process it appropriately before it cankers the relationship. 
She and her husband got through the difficult times by the grace of God, she says. It's very challenging to stay connected as a couple in the NICU. Luckily for us, when he was down, I was up, and when I was up, he was down, so we were able to support each other, kind of pull each other through. We had always had a strong faith. We were both um, had been raised as Christian, and we we weren't really involved in a church, but we had a strong faith. And for us, that's the first time we prayed together on our knees on a daily basis. So that really brought us together rather than tearing us apart. There's just so many layers upon layers of challenges that you you have to work through. So um, how we did it, I don't know. By the grace of God, we did. Um, we we really had we struggled for many years after the NICU, though. Um, my husband did not seek counseling for quite some time, even though I really had urged and encouraged and begged and pleaded um, that he talk to someone. But it was many, many years later before he was willing to to do talk therapy. And um, it benefited him greatly. It's benefited our marriage greatly. As for Jackson, he did get bigger, and he got better. Finally, just before Thanksgiving, he was ready to come home. The night before we left the hospital, they call it rooming in, and so they gave us a hospital room and brought him down there, and we were supposed to take care of him all by ourselves for like 12 hours, and it was grueling. It was awful. He cried the whole time, and I think I cried most of the time. I couldn't believe I couldn't soothe my own baby. I felt like a huge failure, but you know, I mentioned earlier about you know, the nervous system and the sensory. And so you're taking him out of a very busy, bustling environment, all he's known for four months. And then you're putting him in this quiet bedroom, basically hospital room with me and his dad. And uh, neither one of us really knew what the heck we were doing. Uh, so it was quite scary. We, we laughed that they actually let us leave the hospital the baby because clearly we failed if there was a test for a room and in we failed it <laughs> but uh we brought him home and i was just so excited i just wanted him to be home before thanksgiving uh, that was kind of the goal thanksgiving was approaching and i really wanted him home and so he came home the week before and uh, we have a precious picture of my dad holding him uh, right by the turkey. And the turkey probably weighed three times more than Jackson weighed at the time. But, you know, it was just wonderful. Like, I never wanted to put him down. But I'll also say it was grueling. He was on several different medications. You know, he didn't breastfeed for, oh goodness, he was born in August and he finally breastfed in February. So I had continued to pump and I would try to breastfeed every day and he just struggled, struggled, struggled. But I, I just knew that it was possible and I, every time I'd say, okay, this is the last day I'm going to try. But then the next day I'd say, no, I'm going to try one more time. And so we just kept trying until he got it. There were so many doctor's appointments. Uh, it was it was really difficult and the family couldn't come. Uh, that Christmas, my mother had had the flu and there was a lot of illness going around. So my husband and I and the baby were just alone on Christmas. And I was just so, so sad. But I, I look back now and I just cherish that. I have the most beautiful pictures of us, just as the three of us. And, you know, now I wouldn't change that for the world, but that was very hard at the time not to be able to share him. I couldn't 
and really share him with everyone. He was just at home with me. Didn't have Facebook at the time. I think Facebook would have changed a lot and been able to share that journey. Kelly's script of a perfect or perfectly normal pregnancy was interrupted, made irrelevant, thrown out the window. She found herself deep in a surreal land of improvisation, surprised, confused, and isolated. Where she cried in the bathroom at 3 a.m. while pumping milk for a baby she couldn't hold and truly wondering if it would be better if he lived or died. It's not a common experience, but it's also not terribly uncommon. Those who find themselves in the NICU with the preterm baby have their own path through that world, but that doesn't mean they have to walk it alone. It helps to have a voice to follow, someone who has walked their own path in the same world to help you find your way through, someone to walk along with you when the going is rough, who's been there and knows the lay of the land. Thanks, Kelly, for sharing your experience and giving us all a glimpse into the NICU world. Thanks for looking out for the well-being of parents who find themselves there, for advocating for them and anticipating their needs. Producer Emeritus Ryan Barnhart, two musicians Ben Howell, Tyson Shank, and Ellen Barnhart, to patrons Alicia Fullerman and Stephanie Hyde for getting us that much closer to being able to hire transcription services so we can work a little faster. A lot faster. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'd love to listen to you too. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts, find us on Facebook and Instagram, or look us up on Patreon. And thanks to Micah Heiselt, who, I kid you not, created a killer Slimer Halloween costume out of foam and pool noodles. Check it out on Instagram if you don't believe me. It's amazing. It doesn't even matter like my